Welcome to this Google audio presentation of The Man from UNCLE, The Doomsday Affair, by Harry Whittington. Volume 2, 4 Solo walked slowly in the mid-morning heat, reflected from the red brick streets around the train station, College Park. He felt as if he were moving through an unfiltered nightmare where nothing went right, and even the buildings seemed to waver rubber-like when he looked at them. He'd been prowling for a long time, and had taken much indirect questioning to learn the names of the two young people who'd blasted over the cliff at Polly Pass. Polly Jade Ing, they told him. She was a good girl who saw lays. Kena Tamashiro worked as a beach boy at Waikiki. They planned to be married. Beyond this, there was little he could learn consumed two hours to learn that Polly Jade Ing's parents had returned to China six months earlier. She had lived over a tailor shop near the Carnival Park on River Street. Her room revealed nothing to him except that she was a casual housekeeper who wrote no letters and kept none if she received any. She had a weakness for flashy, colored, spike-heeled slippers, shifts, and seemed unable to find a satisfactory hair lacquer. A dozen different brands lined her cluttered dresser. The Honolulu Star listed Kena Tamashiro's address as only Ayala Street. Solo had asked at a dozen houses, but the dark-eyed people stared at him and shook their heads. Most of them did not even speak to him. Solo sighed, walking in the sun. He no longer believed that either Kena Tamashiro or the pretty Polly Jade were any more than pawns in the deadly game that had caused Ursula's death. But he had to keep pushing it now, because they were the only link to whoever had hired Polly Jade to deliver the lethal lay at the airport. And Polly Jade had known there was something wrong with the deal. That was fear he had seen in her face. Fear that had made her run. Fear that had sent her to her death. Clearly, she had been hired by a more devious employer than the Honolulu Chamber of Commerce. The lay had been deadly, and Polly Jade had known that when she had tossed it over Ursula's head. Obviously, she'd even known that only the upward pull on the lay would detonate it. What else Polly had known, he'd never be able to learn. But perhaps the beach boy might be involved. He had run, too, and had seemed to know why he was running. Anyhow, it was a lane he had to follow all the way because he had no leads except a silver whip and a letter of meaningless jargon. Solo was near the shabby depot of the small-gauge railway when he first noticed the young boy. The child was the color of beer in the sun, about nine. He wore a flowered shirt, brown shorts. He was barefoot. Each time Solo glanced over his shoulder, the boy was somewhere near him. He glanced at the small train pulling out of the station. Across the street, the military had posted an off-limits sign. There were small stores, paint-peeled houses, and narrow alleys. Solo felt a tug on his shirt. Mister? Solo was not too astonished to see it was the boy staring up at him with round black eyes. Mister, you looking for something? Solo nodded. A beach boy who's supposed to live around here. I know most everyone lives around here, mister. You know Kena Tamashiro? 
Oh. Why do you say that? He's dead, mister. I know that. He lived around here, though, didn't he? I know where he lived. Solo flipped the boy a fifty-cent piece, tossing it so it fell into the boy's shirt pocket. The boy grinned admiringly. Can you tell me where he lived? Solo asked. The boy removed the coin from his pocket, clutching it tightly in his fist. All right. He motioned Solo to follow and ran across the street. A car wailed at him. The boy waited at the mouth of a debris-littered alley until Solo crossed the street and stepped up onto the walk. Then he moved away into the narrow passageway. Solo glanced both ways and followed. Cats slithered between cans and barrels of refuse. Rear windows opened on the alley, and voices came from those windows, along with the smells of cooking and rancid food. Solo watched the boy run cat-like ahead of him. As he walked deeper into the alley, a strange quietness seemed to envelop him. There was a tension in the silence. Watchful. Waiting. A cat screeched behind him, and Solo glanced over his shoulder. Two men had entered the alley behind him. One of them had stepped on a cat's tail. Solo saw that they both looked young, about the age of the dead Kena Tamashiro. They even resembled him in flesh color and body size, as well as the casual and gaudy garb affected by the surfers and the beach boys. He would not have been certain they were following him, except that they tried to hide when he turned. Solo exhaled heavily, looking again for the child ahead of him. The boy waited impatiently where the alley intersected with another, even less prepossessing. How much farther, kid? Something in his tone diluted the last ounce of the boy's courage. The child gazed at Solo at one moment, then healed and ran along the side alley. Two more brightly garbed beach boys stepped from the alleyways, blocking Solo's path. Behind him, Solo heard the other two running toward him. Solo moved to the wall and put his back to it. His face set, he watched, as the four youthful men advanced upon him. They began to talk to him, their voices flat and cold, not waiting for him to answer, not wanting him to. What are you doing here? You looking for Kena, huh? Kena's not down here. Not anymore. Cain is dead. You know he's dead? You know Polly's dead? Are you some kind of a cop? Yeah, he's a cop. He's looking down here for Cana. He knows he won't find Cana, huh? You know what? You know he's dead, huh? Yeah, he knows they're dead. You killed Cana, didn't you? Yeah, you killed him. They crowded in upon him now. The two immediately in front were the only ones able to get directly at him. The others were hampered by the refuse barrels on either side of him. It happened quickly. The two boys before him pulled out switchblade knives and flicked out the blades. Solo was forced to give them his entire attention. The gun in his holster seemed to press against his ribs, reminding him that it was there to equalize the odds. But he did not touch it for the moment. Polly and Kana had been mixed up in something evil, but these boys were Kana's friends. They were saddened, they were enraged by his death, and they were just boys. There had been enough killing. He wanted to escape without more. The odds didn't make it seem likely, though. One boy on either side of Solo grabbed a refuse barrel and upset it in the alley, rolling it toward him as the two knife-wielders sprang at him. 
Solo saw the glint of the knife's blade, the gleam of teeth, bared in rage, black eyes wild with hatred. As the barrels reached him, he lunged upward, going to his left over one, and using its forward motion to propel him hard against the first-armed thug. He heard the boy cry out and try to straighten. Solo chopped him down, feeling the side of his hand contact the boy's neck. The boy sprawled face down across the rolling barrel, and Solo was free beyond him. The three remaining attackers were, for the moment, caught in a confusion of their own making. As the nearest knife carrier whipped around and sprang at Solo, Solo shook free of his jacket, snagging it by the collar as it crumpled almost to the ground. He brought it upward, feeling the tug as the knife was thrust into it. Solo jerked the coat past him, carrying the boy with it. With his free hand, Solo clipped the falling boy in the throat, and at the same instant released his jacket. The boy fell gasping and writhing three feet beyond him in the alley. The last two boys hesitated one moment, glancing at each other, their dark faces troubled. The second knife-wielder jerked his head forward and then leaped upon Solo at the same time, the unarmed youth striking high and the other crouching to rip upward with the switchblade. Solo felt the fierce impact of the two stocky boys, and he gave with it, going against the wall again. Another barrel was overturned. Another cat howled. Otherwise, the alley's silence remained unbroken. The unarmed boy tackled Solo about the shoulders, trying to pin his arms to his sides. Solo could hear his heavy breathing. Solo let the boy clutch him with both arms, still retreating. As he toppled back, he caught the youth, with his fingers thrust deeply into his nostrils. He thrust upward hard, and the boy screamed, releasing his grip. Still holding him helpless with his fingers and his nostrils, Solo caught his collar and slammed him down on the crouching knifer. Both of them went down, but the knifer was still scrambling forward, and Solo felt the slicing of the knife along his trousers. From behind him, the other boy had gotten to his feet, still gagging and unable to catch a full breath. He swung wildly with his knife, and Solo snagged his wrist, jerking him forward off his feet. He chopped him across the neck, letting him fall into the tangle of bodies and arms and legs in alley refuse. Solo retreated again, but the second knifer had leapt free, tackling Solo at the ankles. Solo saw the alley springing upwards toward him. As he struck, the other two boys turned and leapt upon him. Beat across the face, Solo sagged against the wall, momentarily stunned. They swarmed over him, taking advantage of this momentary edge. Solo saw the bright gleam of switchblades silver in the alley light. Silver. The silver whip. Why would he be thinking about a thing like that in a moment like this? A knife sliced at his shirt, scratching his flesh. He used his knee to checkmate the knifer and saw him fall away. Heard the clatter of the knife on the ground. His extended fingers sank into the solar plexus of the next boy, pressing him downward relieving him of his weight, and he locked the fingers of both hands, catching them under the chin of the last one, knowing that in his rage he might decapitate him as he hurled him backwards. But he was not really thinking about the four boys anymore, or the alley, or their knives. He was thinking about that silver whip that he'd seen in Ursula's suitcase. And even as the knife point made another swipe at him, 
He was grinning coldly because suddenly he remembered where he'd seen that silver whip before. 5. Ilya Kiriakin prowled the cell in the Honolulu jail. Outside his cell, the detective lieutenant who had arrested him sat relaxed in a cane-bottomed straight chair. You'll make it easier on all of us if you talk, he said. Ilya sighed. I have told you for three hours straight I have nothing to say. You'll beg to talk before I'm through with you. Perhaps I will, but I'm not begging yet. Listen, the slender man leaned forward, speaking in a conciliatory and confidential tone. I'm Lieutenant Yakato Guerrero. Perhaps you've heard of me. I'm afraid not. If you'd been long in Honolulu, you would have heard of me. My record as a police detective is without a flaw. I did not get my promotion through any influence, only because of my record. I have no blemishes. Each case I have been assigned to, I have completed most successfully. That's very commendable. Yes, it is. On this island, people know Lieutenant Yakato Guerrero. The law-abiding feels safer because of me. The criminal hopes I will not set myself on his trail, because I end my cases in only one way. I know, most successfully. Perhaps you will succeed with the death of that girl, but not by sitting here harassing me. You're barking up the wrong red herring. I told you, I know nothing of her death. You will talk to me before I am through. I am a patient man, and I do not anticipate you to spoil my record that has no blemish. Consider me as nothing, as an innocent bystander caught in this situation. Let me neither be a triumph nor a loss to you, sir. Guerrero pushed back his chair and did not speak. For some time there was silence between them, and Elia began to see that Guerrero had not lied. The police lieutenant was a patient man, with an Asian patience in which time hung suspended without meaning. Elia drew his hand across his mouth, knowing that time was not suspended for him. Sam, the mismatched, ugly Eurasian, was incontestably a link in the Tixie-Ilno matter, the affair that had seemed blown apart with the death of the beautiful, defecting spy. Finally, as if he had been continuing an unbroken dialogue, the police lieutenant said, Who are you? I told you. I am George Yorkwitz, a bellhop at the hotel. Who are you really? Oh, come on now, Guerrero. You must have more to do than this. The hotel manager recognized me. I didn't even ask him. He looked at me and told you himself I was employed at the hotel. But he could not tell us what you were doing up there. Only you can tell us this, and this is what you will tell me. I told you I was cold up there. The dark face twisted into a painful smile. By the dead girl, I suppose. No, I never talked to her. Someone called me a man. Why would I call the police and report her death? If you're the one who did this, then... The hotel manager himself told you I reported the death to the desk. As an employee of the hotel, I had a right to be up there. Lieutenant shook his head. In civilian clothes? I was getting ready to quit my job. I changed my clothes on the way up there. Why? I told you I was getting ready to quit my job. Why? 
I came out here on vacation. I was tired of the work, that's all. You can't make any more of it. I don't know the dead girl. Why don't you try to find that man? What man is that? You get in a person's nerves, you know that, don't you? I never took this job to be popular. I know, only to be without a flaw. I saw no one in that room with you, no trace. I found only an empty suitcase that may have belonged to the dead girl. There was a man in that room. He forced me to stay there until you and the hotel manager arrived. I'm telling you the truth. Perhaps you are. The voice was low. If you are, then you have nothing to fear. I have you to fear. You won't listen to me. You're more interested in a perfect record of South cases than you are in the truth. How many people have you forced to confess to crimes when they weren't even guilty? Kiriakin had found Guerrero's Achilles heel. The youthful detective sprang up, gripping the bars, his black eyes fixed on Ilya's impassive face. Don't you say such things to me. Don't you ever say such things to me. Then why don't you let me try to prove to you there was another man in the room with me? Guerrero relaxed. He straightened, allowing himself a faint superior smile. I think we will keep you here. We will wait for the results of your fingerprints. He turned and walked away, going leisurely out of the cell block. Elias stood unmoving at the bars, staring at the man's back. He shook his head, now deeply troubled because of what those fingerprints would reveal about him to Guerrero. He prowled the cell. He ran his fingers through his wheat-colored hair. It flopped back across his forehead. He knew what the results of the fingerprints inquiry would be. The FBI would send word to the Honolulu police, showing not only that his name was Elia Kariakin, but then it would have to be shown who he was and for whom he worked. He shook his head. The assignment was already going too badly for him to involve Uncle in his presence on the islands. He and Napoleon Solo had been assigned by Alexander Waverley to find a person named Tixie Ilno, who might be male or female or might not even exist at all. No one in Uncle had ever seen Tixie Ilno. They knew only that was the code name which Thrush had given to him. Spelled backwards, Tixie Ilno was simply exit only, which, from the meager clues and information gathered by the agents from Uncle, was Tixie Ilno's plan for humanity. A female spy, frightened and almost hysterical in her desire to come in from the cold, had managed to contact Uncle and make known her desire to defect from Thrush. Word came that that agent was one of the few people who had actually known, seen, and talked with Tixie Ilno. She was anxious to trade her information for Uncle's protection. The frightened spy's name, of course, was Ursula Baines Neferth. Even the suggestion that agents for Uncle were remotely involved in the murder of the fleeing spy would completely destroy all chance of continuing the pursuit of Tixie Ilno. There was no doubt about it. Tixie Ilno appeared to be the most dangerous foe yet encountered by the agents of Uncle. He worked from the deepest network of secrecy, as attested to by the fact that not even Uncle knew whether Tixie Ilno was a man or a woman, an individual, or even a conspiracy. Whoever or whatever Tixie Ilno was, the countermeasures had to be accomplished in a matching veil of secrecy. Elia stared at the bars of his cell. One thought kept wheeling through his brain. 
He had to get out of here before there was any answer on his fingerprints, which had already been flashed across the ocean and continent to Washington, D.C. He just had to get out of here. You, George. When Elia, lost in savage concentration, did not reply to the unfamiliar name he'd assumed as a hotel bellhop, the jailer scraped his nightstick along the cell bars. You, Yorkwitz, George. Elia turned from his contemplation of the barred window, staring at the jailer. What do you want? You got company, the jailer said. A friend of yours. Elia felt the breath exhale from him as if he had not been breathing for an incredible time. Solo must have finally somehow learned of his plight. He strode across the cell. Yes, take me to him. Relax, the jailer said. We'll bring him back here. He says he's a bellhop from your hotel in Waikiki. Ilya nodded, waiting expectantly. The jailer went along the corridor to the entrance of the cell block. The door was open, and a man came through. Ilya stared, heart sinking. This was not Solo. And it was no bellhop from the hotel. And it was no one he had ever seen before. He shook his head. The man came toward him, smiling confidently. The jailer pointed out the cell and leaned against the wall. You got three minutes, fella. The man nodded and walked to the bars where Elia waited, puzzled and watchful. Hello, George. The man was obviously Chinese, smartly dressed, shoes shiny and black. His mouth smiled, but there was no light in his eyes. I don't know you, Elia said. The mouth went on smiling. The man peered at him. Sure you know me, George. His voice was louder than necessary. Elia saw he was speaking for the guard's benefit. We work together. Why, when I came in here, they frisked me, George. He smiled and laughed loudly. How about that? Afraid I would bring in something to help you escape. How about that, George? How about that, Elia said. I don't know you, and I don't know what you want. Please leave now. Take it easy, George. Why, I went through a lot to get in here. They took everything from me, George. Everything except my fountain pen. How about that, George? He took the fountain pen from his shirt pocket, extending it suddenly toward Elia. Elia stared, lunged backwards, crying out. In the same instant, the visitor pressed on the end of the pen, and a white liquid flushed out of it, striking Elia on the face. Elia tried to cry out and could not. He tried to catch himself, but had lost all coordination. He was aware of nothing except the burn of the fluid on his skin, eyes, nostrils. He toppled backwards on the bed, for the moment suffocating and almost entirely paralyzed. The man beyond the bars laughed again. Well, all right, George. You don't want to talk to me. I'll clear out, I guess. We wanted to help you. You don't want to help us. Well, that's all right, too. He turned and thrust his fountain pen back into his shirt pocket and strode away, complaining loudly. Sprawled on a cot, Elia stared after him, unable to move at all. He heard the cell block door open and close distantly, and then silence in the cell. He tried to turn and couldn't. He lay unmoving while the FBI investigated his fingerprints and flashed word back to the Honolulu police. Elia Kariakin, 
agent of the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. Of course, he'd be freed after that, but he might as well be dead. He struggled, his nerve centers frantically ordering his numbed muscles to move, even to twitch, to show any sign of life at all. He tried to cry out and could not even speak. Whoever had put him here meant to see he stayed until he was framed for a crime he had not committed, or until his true identity was established and his usefulness destroyed. He stared furiously, frustrated and enraged at his hands, his feet, and he was struck fiercely again by the simplicity of the attack. First, Ursula's face was blown away by a mechanism concealed in a lay, flowers given a hundred times a day to visitors to Hawaii. Now a visitor to the jail was carefully searched and allowed to enter the cell block with a lethal fountain pen. Who even looked at a fountain pen in a man's shirt pocket? 6. Solo straightened up from the littered alley and put his back against the wall. Around him the refuse barrels were overturned. A stocky beach boy folded neatly over one of them, the other three lying face down in the scattered garbage. Solo felt a stab of pain going through him, and he touched gingerly at the fire in his side. He tried to keep his face expressionless, disliking the thought of giving in to the sharp burn of abrasion and contusion marring his face. His eye was swelling, purpling, and he tasted blood in the corner of his mouth. He experienced some small satisfaction when he looked at the four young thugs sprawled unconscious around him. Well, the hell with them. He had not bowed to them, though his jacket was knife-ripped and stained with rancid refuse and his shirt torn. But he had another lead, the silver whip. Despite the deaths of Ursula and the flower girl and her beach boy, he tried to smile. He had walked into a wall and he looked it. Solo raised the back of his hand and drew it across his mouth. After a time, when he was sure his legs would support him, he straightened from the wall and gave his opponents a sardonic bow, but carefully and not very deeply. Even so, the sky and littered pavement changed places for a moment. He turned to walk away, but a movement caught his attention, and he stopped. The stocky boy folded across the barrel was coming around. Solo turned to him, almost sadly, caught him by the collar and forcibly lifted him to his feet, bracing him against the wall. Solo shook him, both hands holding his bright shirt. Who hired you to do this? He kept asking the question until he saw those dark eyes focus and comprehension return. The boy shook his head. Solo saw fear and admiration in the youth's face where there had once only been cold contempt. No, no, sir, nobody. You see, Kano was our friend, and... Who did he work for? With us, sir, at the beach. Who else? Answer me. Who did he work for? With us, sir, at the beach. Who else? Answer me. Who else? The boy shook his head, frightened. No, no, sir, no one. Solo stared at him, seeing that the boy was not lying. He was too frightened to dissemble. Solo was calm. He held the youth's shirt, forcing him to meet his gaze. What about this girl? Polly Jade Ng. What about her? What do you know of her? I've known her for lots of years. 
She and Kana, they were they were going to get married. Do you know who she worked for? Only the Chamber of Commerce, that's all, I swear. Are you a cop? Are you some kind of cop, sir? Solo sighed, deciding the attack on him was a matter of vengeance. The need to cleanse Kena's honor, and nothing more. He tightened his grip on the boy's shirt. I'm going to give you a chance to get out of here and away from these guys. If not, I'll put you right back to sleep with them. Oh no, sir, no! That won't be needed. I should be at work already. I'm late. There's no need. Then get out of here. Move. And keep moving. Thank you, sir. Thank you! When the boy was gone, running through the littered alley, Sola remained where he was for another moment. From the pocket of his jacket, he removed the sender receiver he had used in the hotel room to summon Kiriakin. Now, after checking the alley and finding it empty and silent, he pulled out the antenna and said into the speaker, Bubba, acknowledge. Acknowledge. He frowned, waiting. The call should have carried at least five miles. He glanced around, thinking he wanted to get out of here. A man could get hurt in this island paradise. Furthermore, he wanted to communicate to Elia his need to pursue the clues offered by that silver whip. Bubba, acknowledge, please. He spoke calmly and clearly, but without emotion. He touched at the darkening spot beside his mouth. He pressed the button, listening. He made one last effort. Bubba, come in. Please, acknowledge. There was no answer. He stopped listening. He reset the antenna and replaced the set in his jacket pocket and walked back toward the train station to the distance, carrying the soiled, slashed coat across his shoulder. He decided that Elia had gone off alert because it was basic computing inside the machinery of Kiriakin's unemotional mind that if he did not hear from Solo, there was no signal to hit the panic switch. If anything, Elia would become calmer than ever, certain he was on a DC-7, winging stateside.